Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Last week I talked about justification by faith, which is the phrase that we might sum up Martin Luther's understanding. And last week I mainly talked about it in a negative light, that is, that is, in as much as it's combined with the law, I think we could identify it with the accursed gospel, or what Paul says the false teachers are teaching in Galatia. But this week I want to talk about justification by faith as a a clear understanding of the unconditional good news and really the message of the New Testament. And this is the verse here, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So faith saves, Paul says, but this is not your doing, You can't brag about your faith. Faith is not something you do or accomplish. Now it certainly, he goes on to say, involves workmanship. It involves works. But it is God's working in you. It is God's workmanship, not yours. God is shaping us through faith to walk in good works. And so I think the gift of the Reformation and of Martin Luther to the world is the recovery, the re-articulation of the unconditional free grace of the gospel, which can in fact be summed up as justification by faith. And of course, as we talked last week, the problem is the same phrase can be used to describe the opposite namely conditional salvation defined and bound up with the baseline of the law as the condition the unconditional good news it's really easy to understand and so today should be easy because I'm going to focus on the goodness and joy of the good news and we you know last week we talked that certainly this has been twisted So that very often the simple gospel truth, justification by faith, maybe most often has been made to fit Paul's description of the accursed gospel in Galatians. Which of course is no gospel at all, but the human problem repackaged as the solution. And so the good news, the unconditional good news, it's uncomplicated, it's unconditional, it's singular, it's straightforward. But we, maybe I certainly, have missed it 
very often due to all the obstacles that can be thrown in the way. And so I think we have to understand the unconditionality of God's love for humanity. And there are several Reformed and Lutheran theologians who have worked this out to make clear that the unconditional nature of this good news is really a a reworking of the entire faith. You know, Luther may not have accomplished the end point of his theology, but there are some who have been careful not to fall into the common error that Luther and certainly Calvin fell into in describing what is really a conditional gospel. And one of these is a man named James Torrance. The Torrances are a kind of famous Scottish family. And he gives a description of the Reformation that I think is one we can all agree with as a good understanding of the gospel. So let me quote James Torrance here at some length. He says, The important thing is that in the Bible... God's dealings with men in creation and in redemption, in grace, are those of a covenant, not a contract. This was the heart of the Pauline theology of grace, expounded in Romans and Galatians. And this was the central affirmation of the Reformation. The God of the Bible is a covenant God and not a contract God. God's covenant dealings with men have their source in the loving heart of God. And the form of the covenant is the indicative statement, I will be your God and you shall be my people. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God who has made a covenant for us in Christ binding himself to man and man to himself in Christ, and who summons us to respond in faith and love to what he has done so freely for us in Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we are awakened to that love and lifted up out of ourselves to participate in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. This is an amazing statement by a Reformed theologian who is talking about faith as participation in the communion with the Father. He says two things come together here in a biblical understanding of grace. It's the covenant of love made for man in Christ between the Father and the incarnate Son. That is, we're asked to join this relationship. On the one hand, it is unconditioned by any considerations of worth or merit or prior claim. God's grace is free grace. On the other hand, it is unconditional in the costly claims it makes upon us. God's grace is costly grace. It summons us unconditionally to a life of holy love of love for God and love for all men. The one mistake is to stress that free grace is cheap grace. And here he's referencing Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who talks about cheap grace and costly grace. That is that we can take this grace for granted in a kind of 
antinomianism or the notion of a lawlessness. And of course, this is what John Wesley protested against. The other mistake is to stress the costly claims of grace in which we turn grace into conditional grace in a legalism which loses the meaning of grace. So there are the two poles. We don't want to be lawless and we don't want to be legalists. And so the fallacy of legalism in all ages, he says this is maybe the tendency to turn God's covenant of grace into a contract. To say God will only love you and forgive you or give you the gift of the Holy Spirit if, dot, 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 if you do this, if you fulfill these conditions. But this, he says, is to invert the calmly order of grace. In the Bible, the form of the covenant is such that the indicatives of grace are prior to the obligations of law and human obedience. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have loved you and redeemed you and brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, keep my commandments. God does the delivering prior to the keeping of the commandments. God does the promise and the deliverance, and then the commandments are given, that God's love precedes all of these things. The covenant has been turned into a contract, and God's grace or the gift of the Spirit made conditional, you know, if the imperatives are made prior to the indicatives. And so the foundational shift that James Torrance is describing here is from contract to covenant. We've got to understand the significance of the covenant relationship that God made with Abraham fulfilled in Christ. A contract describes a condition such as a payment, an if statement. If you do this, I will do that. Where a covenant is an unconditional promise without prior obligation or requirement. That is, God has acted in Christ to redeem the world and to deliver all people from bondage. The Jews couldn't help themselves in their bondage in Egypt, and we can't help ourselves in our bondage to sin, death, and the devil. This apocalyptic, this cosmic deliverance, it's new creation, it's new birth, it's death and resurrection. And so Torrance is very careful here to describe, to weave between antinomianism, lawlessness, and legalism. It's neither one of these. It is unconditional in the costly claims it makes upon us. And this gift requires our life. It requires everything. But of course, it is not the exchange of life for life, but the relinquishing of the grip that death has upon us in order to live. Here is true life. And so costly grace costs everything. But of course, this everything amounts to nothing as we have invested our lives outside of Christ in a lie, in that which has no real value. 
And so I think part of the problem in receiving and comprehending this good news is the confounded or the deceived nature of the bondage. You know, the reference here is to the house of bondage from which God delivers us. I think that house of bondage can be an, a, a reality, an all-inclusive world, uh, a kind of psychic reality that we live in, in which everything is a condition. And so our very being is changed by the breaking in of God's love and grace. And this is a different way of conceiving God, the world, and humans. That is, I think, to understand justification by faith rightly, we're going to have to go through and redefine all the categories. We're going to have to redefine our understanding of who we are, anthropology. We're going to have to redefine our understanding of God, theology. We're going to have to redefine our understanding of the world, cosmology. So prior to the work of Christ, death was the controlling factor. You know, that is the condition that is put upon everything. And the law then seemed to provide a measurement or condition to deal with death. You know, this is really what religion does, I think. This is what idolatry does. It in some way attempts to negotiate or manipulate the problem of death. We certainly know this is what psychology is about. And it drives home the point that I think is just there in the Bible that the fear of death, which we might even call God, it can be conscious, it can be unconscious, but it is determinative of our psychic struggle. And of course, it's obvious, no one but God has the power to deliver from death. And this has occurred in the death and resurrection of Christ. No one had the power to deliver the Jews from out of Egypt other than God. No one other than God can deliver us from the grave. And he's done that in Christ. And so reality is on a different ground, producing a new world order, a new recreation, a new creation of the human psyche. Now, the old order, you know, relinquishing the old order may be kind of disturbing as some, like Saul, the Pharisee, he, as he describes, he says, you know, I exceeded my peers in religiosity, in moral progress, in attaining heaven. But now all of this, he says, is counted as so much garbage in Philippians. And so the human salvation system, which promised life, it only produces death. And maybe it's kind of anger-provoking, you know, to say, this is unconditional good news. And so the reality may be slow in sinking in, because we kind of like our slavery. You know, some of the Jews said, let's go back to Egypt where we can at least get three square meals that we find security in our enslavement very often. Maybe we like our neuroses. Maybe we like our sickness. And that's why it's called neurosis and sickness. For Adam, the reality of death is determinate. And this reality, you know, that's the, the final thing that must be negotiated. And so a contract has to be drawn up. Maybe it's conscious, maybe it's unconscious. 
But the fear of death reigns. It, it's only in Christ that we can defeat this fearful orientation. You know, do we describe this as an orientation to death, an orientation to the law? It's the same thing. And to simply break open the tomb, which is what Christ has done. The tomb is that which makes life conditional. That's what makes life a contract. And Christ then gives life where death was the bottom line. That means all the conditions have to be renegotiated. Or the negotiation that we put on just has to be relinquished. Everything must give way in support of this gospel message. Which means a redefinition of what it means to be human. A reworking of what it means to know our epistemology. A relinquishing of every form of conditionalism with its focus on the grave, with its focus on punishment, on retributive justice. And so the problem in apprehending free grace lies in the failure, I think, to reorder and apprehend everything in light of its unconditional nature. In short, this unconditional gospel, it's universal, it's cosmic, it's apocalyptic, it's a breaking into the world system and it's of a different order. It is not retributive. It's restorative. It's redeeming. That's why it's called redemption. And it's not imagining that suffering is required for the penalty and payment to be met. God doesn't require anything for his forgiveness. It's unconditional good news. It's not focused on God's anger. It's focused on the love of God. And as we talked last week, certainly the anger of God is a subcategory of his love. There is no room for God being eternally angry. And there cannot be a category of eternal punishment. But maybe most importantly, the nature of human bondage is directly tied to death, to law, to punishment. So that the manner in which justification by faith may be misconstrued, that is the misunderstanding of Luther, of Calvin, though they hit upon this idea, that misunderstanding is itself an example of the problem, of the bondage to sin, of the bondage to a condition which unconditional good news saves us from. So the law always requires, I mean that's what the law is by definition, it requires condition and the gospel frees us from every form of conditionalism. Look at Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, you know, neither the law or over and against the law, neither antinomianism or legalism, neither of these counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The law is not the standard for love. The law is not the standard for faith. But faith, trust, and love. Christ are primary. And so the accursed gospel, you know, the one the false teachers are teaching in Paul's day and are teaching all around us today, it will make Christ secondary so that Christianity is reduced to a contract 
rather than this covenantal love relationship. And we can call both things justification by faith. That's the problem. Both justification and faith, though, have a different meaning in these two understandings. In one, justification is measured by the law, rather than justification or righteousness referring to God. God is just. God is right. And God is making things right. That is, the apocalyptic breaking in of the love of God, righteousness, in one system is measured according to the law. In the other, it's measured according to Christ. Faith, in turn, is defined, you know, in this failed system. Oh, we imagine that we understand who Jesus is because he meant the conditions of the law. And the focus is on his death. He particularly did this on the cross. You know, he paid the penalty on the cross and now God is satisfied. And what gets left out is his life, his teaching. One of my students is now teaching in a Christian school. He asked his students about some phrases from the Bible, from the Sermon on the Mount. They had no idea where these phrases came from. This is a Christian school. I think the life of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is very often secondary to the death of Christ. And of course the same thing, the church becomes a kind of waiting room. The Holy Spirit that we're not quite sure what to do with. So that the death of Christ becomes the primary and maybe the singular focus in this failed gospel understanding. One is saved by applying the legal benefits of Christ's death to one's personal law books. And if you're not saved as Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me by being loving and faithful through his extended body, the church. I guess you could do these things, but they really don't pertain. Let me illustrate this with talking about, you know, in the two systems, we can talk about conversion in two different ways. Is conversion due to the law? You know, I, I know about the law, I know God's just requirements, and I feel guilty because I just can't keep them. Or is conversion because I meet Jesus Christ and I, my life is changed up? Is conversion the breaking in of the good news into a system of bondage, which I think it is, or is it an answer to a problem that I've already formulated? And I suppose we can make our conversion fit either one, just as we can make Paul's conversion you know, fit either one. Paul's conversion is often pictured like Luther's. And in this understanding on the road to Damascus, you know, Paul must have been struggling with his introspective conscience. He was feeling guilty and miserable. And then he meets Jesus. Jesus relieves him of his guilt and depression. He meets Christ and understands deliverance is now provided from the requirements of the law. Christ has met the requirements. He's paid the penalty. And grace is now available in place of wrath and punishment. That's very often the way we depict Paul's conversion. 
And maybe it is true, you know, maybe misery is the anteroom to many forms of conversion. That's why people convert, because, well, I'm kind of miserable. And maybe we could chalk that up to consciousness, to some sort of broken law. I'm not saying that's impossible. You know, I spent 20 years in Japan, and it's a place where people are, have never heard of this, of the gospel or justification. Or, and I never met anyone who had this perception of God, who had a perception of sin and the law that this justification theory describes. And this is not the way Paul describes himself. In fact, he describes himself as having pride in his religious achievement before he was a Christian. In Philippians, he talks about his pre-Christian understanding was guilt-free, without fault in regard to the law. He said, I kept it perfectly. And in fact, this actually fits the common Japanese self-understanding. If you ask, well, you know, how are you in regard to the law? Perfect. Never broken any laws. He describes in Philippians, he considered himself righteous, zealous, beyond his peers, and bearing the highest qualifications. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which in, is in the law, found blameless. You don't get any better than that. Now, of course, Paul says, and I was the chief of sinners. Now, we might look at Romans 7. People often look at that and say, oh, here's Paul's guilty conscience. But actually, this is Paul's retrospective understanding of, about himself, or maybe Adam, or both, from the perspective of a Christian. It's not a narrative about conversion, but it's about being trapped and deceived. And there's no clear route from Romans 7 to Romans 8, apart from the appearance, the breaking in of Christ. Who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul says. Thank God Christ Jesus has rescued me. That is, Romans 7 is not about an introspective conscience that leads to conversion. Romans 7 describes the pre-Christian condition, the nature of the deception. It's a lie that includes, I believe, Paul's self-salvation system as a Pharisee. It is a lie in which one is entrapped by the law of sin and death. So the law, you know, when we, Paul talks about the law in Romans and Galatians, the law is not the anteroom or the, you know, the entryway into the gospel. But he's really talking about the law of sin and death. He's talking about the universality of the deception in regard to the law. The law does not set the condition for salvation. But it is what unconditional salvation delivers from. That is this orientation, this conditionalism to the law. And the perception of God as lawgiver primarily, as punisher, as destroyer, that's the pagan equivalent of the deification of death. This is that which Christ delivers us from. It's not a truth he verifies and satisfies. Martin Luther came to see faith 
as a condition. You know, he captured this idea of an unconditional faith, but I'm afraid he lost it. Rather than unconditional, he saw it as a, a kind of criteria. It may be an easier criteria than keeping the law, but nonetheless a criteria. So I think the answer to Luther, faith saves, not due to the prior criterion of the law, not as a presumed capacity or incapacity, but on the fact that death reigns in the sinful, deceived orientation and Christ delivers from sin and death. That's the gospel. And I think as Paul describes this gospel, it is universal, it's cosmic, it's for all people. He even says it's for all creatures. It's the consummating fact of the eschaton. Philippians 2, 10 to 11 at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Faith is not a condition for salvation. It is salvation enacted in the life of the believer. In the justification system, you know, of a failed understanding, faith does not seem to address any issue or change the person. Oh, you believe these facts about Jesus. And, it, you know, why these particular facts is even unclear. But I think in unconditional salvation, faith is the uprooting of the conditionalism, of the orientation to death. Being found in Christ is to be found in his resurrection life. Let me close. Look at Colossians 2, 11 to 14. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you who are dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This circumcision, Paul says, is not of the law. This is the circumcision of the heart. This is what circumcision was always about. And in the same way, baptism with its death and resurrection. You know, you die and you're raised again. It's not an act on the part of the one being baptized, but it's an action by Christ upon that person. Forgiveness is freely granted in the making alive of God through Christ. We are saved by the grace of God in Christ. Hallelujah. The old Adam has been slain and we are saved by grace because God's love is absolute and unconditional. Through faith, God is saving. As he says here in Colossians, he's canceling the conditionalism of the law and it's death-dealing deceit. It's been nailed to the cross. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.